Section 9 Chapters 17 and 18 of Book 1 of Volume 2 of Democracy in America by Alexis de Tocqueville Translated by Henry Reeve This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is done by Ralph Volpe. Chapter 17 Of Some of the Sources of Poetry Amongst Democratic Nations Various different significations have been given to the word poetry. It would weary my readers if I were to lead them into a discussion as to which of these definitions ought to be selected. I prefer telling them at once that which I have chosen. In my opinion, poetry is the search and the delineation of the ideal. The poet is he who, by suppressing a part of what exists, by adding some imaginary touches to the picture, and by combining certain real circumstances, but which do not in fact concurrently happen, completes and extends the work of nature. Thus the object of poetry is not to represent what is true, but to adorn it, and to present to the mind some loftier image. Verse, regarded as the ideal beauty of language, may be eminently poetical, but verse does not, of itself, constitute poetry. I now proceed to inquire whether, amongst the actions, the sentiments, and the opinions of democratic nations, there are any which lead to a conception of ideal beauty, and which may, for this reason, be considered as natural sources of poetry. It must, in the first place, be acknowledged that the taste for ideal beauty and the pleasure derived from the expression of it are never so intense or so diffused amongst a democratic as amongst an aristocratic people. In aristocratic nations it sometimes happens that the body goes on to act, as it were, spontaneously, while the higher faculties are bound and burdened by repose. Amongst these nations, the people will very often display poetic tastes, and sometimes allow their fancy to range beyond and above what surrounds them. But in democracy, the love of physical gratification, the notion of bettering one's condition, the excitement of competition, the charm of anticipated success, are so many spurs to urge men onwards in the active professions they have embraced, without allowing them to deviate an instant from the track, 
the main stress of the faculties is to this point the imagination is not extinct but its chief function is to devise what may be useful and to represent what is real the principle of equality not only diverts men from the description of ideal beauty it also diminishes the number of objects to be described aristocracy by maintaining society in a fixed position is favorable to the solidity and duration of positive religion as well as to the stability of political institutions it not only keeps the human mind within a certain sphere of belief but it predisposes the mind to adopt one faith rather than another an aristocratic people will always be prone to place intermediate powers between god and man in this respect it may be said that the aristocratic element is favorable to poetry when the universe is peopled with supernatural creatures not palpable to the senses but discoverable by the mind the imagination ranges freely and poets finding a thousand subjects to delineate also find a countless audience to take an interest in their productions in democratic ages it sometimes happens on the contrary that men are as much afloat in matters of belief as they are in their laws. Skepticism then draws the imaginations of poets back to earth, and confines them to the real and visible world. Even when the principle of equality does not disturb religious belief, it tends to simplify it, and to divert attention from secondary agents, to fix it principally on the supreme power aristocracy naturally leads the human mind to the contemplation of the past and fixes it there democracy on the contrary gives men a sort of instinctive distaste for what is ancient in this respect aristocracy is far more favorable to poetry for things commonly grow larger and more obscure as they are more remote and for this twofold reason they are better suited to the delineation of the ideal after having deprived poetry of the past the principle of equity robs it in part of the present amongst aristocratic nations there are a certain number of privileged personages whose situation is as it were without and above the condition of man to these power wealth fame wit refinement and distinction in all things appear particularly to belong the crowd never sees them very closely nor does not watch them in minute details and little is needed to make the description of such men poetical on the other hand amongst the same people you will meet with classes so ignorant low and enslaved they are no less fit for objects of poetry from the excesses of their rudeness and wretchedness than the former are from their greatness and refinement. Besides, as the different classes of which an aristocratic community is composed are widely separated and imperfectly acquainted with each other, the imagination may always represent them with some addition to 
or some subtraction from, what they really are. In democratic communities, where men are all insignificant and very much alike, each man instantly sees all his fellows when he surveys himself. The poets of democratic ages can never, therefore, take any man in particular as a subject of a piece, for an object of slender importance, which is distinctly seen on all sides, will never lend itself to an ideal conception. Thus, the principle of equity, in proportion as it has established itself in the world, has dried up most of the old springs of poetry. Let us now attempt to show what new ones it may disclose. When skepticism had depopulated heaven, and the progress of equality had reduced each individual to smaller and better known proportions, the poet, not yet aware of what they could substitute for the great themes which were departing together with the aristocracy, turned their eyes to inanimate nature. As they lost sight of gods and heroes, they set themselves to describe streams and mountains. Thence originated, in the last century, that kind of poetry which has been called, by way of distinction, the descriptive. Some have thought that this sort of delineation, embellished with all the physical and inanimate objects which cover the earth, was the kind of poetry particular to democratic ages. But I believe this to be an error, and that it only belongs to a period of transition. I am persuaded that in the end, democracy diverts the imagination from all that is external to man and fixes it on man alone. Democratic nations may amuse themselves for a while with considering the productions of nature, but they are only excited in reality by a survey of themselves. Here, and here alone, are the true sources of poetry amongst such nations are to be found and it may be believed that all the poets who shall neglect to draw their inspirations hence will lose all sway over the minds which they would enchant, and will be left in the end with none but unpassioned spectators of their transports. I have shown how the ideas of progression and the infinite perfectibility of the human race belong to the democratic ages. Democratic nations care but little for what has been, but are haunted by visions of what will be. In this direction their unbounded imagination grows and dilates beyond all measure. Here, then, is the wildest range open to the genius of poets, which allows them to remove their performances to a sufficient distance from the eye. Democracy shuts the past against the poet, but opens the future before him. As all the citizens who compose a democratic community are nearly equal and alike, the poet cannot dwell upon any one of them, but the nation itself invites the exercise of his powers. The general solemnitude of individuals, which renders any one of them taken separately an improper subject of poetry, allows poets to include them all in the same imagery, 
and to take a general survey of the people itself. Democratic nations have a clearer perception than any others of their own aspect, and an aspect so imposing is admirably fitted to the delineation of the ideal. I readily admit that the Americans have no poets. I cannot allow that they have no poetic ideas. In Europe, people talk a great deal of the wiles of America, but the Americans themselves never think about them. They are insensible to the wonders of inanimate nature, and they may be said not to perceive the mighty forests which surround them till they fall beneath the hatchet. Their eyes are fixed upon another sight. The American people views its own march across these wilds, drying swamps, turning the course of rivers, peopling solitudes, and subduing nature. This magnificent image of themselves does not meet the gaze of Americans at intervals only. It may be said to haunt every one of them in his least as well as in his most important actions, and always to be flitting before his mind. Nothing conceivable is so petty, so insipid, so crowded with paltry interests, in one word, so anti-poetic as the life of a man in the United States. But amongst the thoughts which it suggests there is always one which is full of poetry, and that is the hidden nerve which gives vigor to the frame. In aristocratic ages each people, as well as each individual, is prone to stand separate and aloof from all others. In democratic ages, the extreme fluctuations of men and the impatience of their desires keep them perpetually on the move, so that the inhabitants of different countries intermingle, see, listen to, and borrow from each other's stores. It is not only then the members of the same community who grow more alike, Communities are themselves assimilated to one another, and the whole assemblage presents to the eye of the spectator one vast democracy, each citizen of which is a people. This displays the aspect of mankind for the first time in the broadest light. All that belongs to the existence of the human race taken as a whole, to its vicissitudes and to its future becomes an abundant mine of poetry. The poets who live in aristocratic ages have been eminently successful in their delineations of certain incidents in the life of a people or a man, but none of them has ventured to include within his performance the destinies of mankind, a task which the poets writing in democratic ages may attempt. At the same time at which every man rising his eyes above his country begins at length to discern mankind at large, the divinity is more and more manifest to the human mind in full and entire majesty. If, in democratic ages, faith in positive religions be often shaken, and the belief in intermediate agents, by whatever name they are called, be overcast, on the other hand, men are disposed to conceive a far broader idea of providence itself, and its interference in human affairs assumes a new and more imposing appearance in their eyes.
looking at the human race as one great whole, they easily conceive that its destinies are regulated by the same design, and in the actions of every individual they are led to acknowledge a trace of that universal and eternal plan on which God rules our race. This consideration may be taken as another prolific sense of poetry which is open in democratic ages. Democratic poets will always appear trivial and frigid if they seek to invest gods, demons, or angels with corporal forms, and if they attempt to draw them down from heaven to dispute the supremacy of earth. But if they strive to connect the great events they commemorate with the general providential designs which govern the universe, and, without showing the finger of the supreme governor, reveal the thoughts of the supreme mind, their works will be admired and understood, for the imaginations of their contemporaries take this direction of its own accord. It may be foreseen in like manner that the poets living in democratic ages will prefer the delineation of passions and ideas to that of persons and achievements. The language, the dress, and the daily actions of men in democracies are repugnant to ideal conceptions. These things are not poetical in themselves, and, if it were otherwise, they would cease to be so, because they are too familiar to all those whom the poet would speak of them. This forces the poet constantly to search below the external surface, which is palpable to the senses, in order to read the inner soul, and nothing lends itself more to the delineation of the ideal than the scrutiny of the hidden depths in the immaterial nature of man. I do not need to ramble over earth and sky to discover a wondrous object woven of contrasts, of greatness and littleness infinite, of intense gloom and of amazing brightness, capable at once of exciting pity, admiration, terror, and contempt. I find that object in myself. Man springs out of nothing, crosses time, and disappears forever into the bosom of God. He is seen but for a moment, staggering on the verge of the two abysses, and there he is lost. If man were wholly ignorant of himself, he would have no poetry in him for it is impossible to describe what the mind does not conceive. If man clearly discerned his own nature, his imagination would remain idle and would have nothing to add to the picture. But the nature of man is sufficiently disclosed for him to apprehend something of himself, and sufficiently obscure for all the rest to be plunged into thick darkness, in which he gropes forever, and forever in vain to lay hold on some completer notion of his being. Amongst a democratic people, poetry will not be fed with legendary lays or the memorials of old traditions. The poet will not attempt to people the universe with supernatural beings in whom his readers and his own fancy have ceased to believe nor will he present virtues and vices in the masks of frigid personification which are better received under their own features. 
all these resources fail him but man remains and the poet needs no more the destinies of mankind man himself taken aloof from his age and his country and standing in the presence of nature and god with his passions his doubts his rare prosperities his inconceivable wretchedness will become the chief if not the sole theme of poetry amongst these nations experience may confirm this assertion if we consider the productions of the greatest poets who have appeared since the world has turned to democracy the authors of our age who have so admirably delineated the features of faust child harold rene and jocelyn did not seek to record the actions of an individual but to enlarge and throw light upon some of the obscure recesses of the human heart such are the poems of democracy the principle of equality does not then destroy all the subject of poetry it renders them less numerous but more vast End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 Of the Inflated Style of American Writers and Orators I have frequently remarked that the Americans, who generally treat of business in clear, plain language, devoid of all ornament, and so extremely simple as to be often coarse, are apt to become inflated as soon as they attempt a more poetical diction. They then vent their pomposity from one end of a harangue to the other, and to hear them lavish imagery on every occasion, one might fancy that they never spoke of anything with simplicity. The English are more rarely given to a similar failing. The cause of this may be pointed out without much difficulty. In democratic communities, each citizen is habitually engaged in the contemplation of a very puny object, namely himself. If he ever raises his looks higher, he then perceives nothing but the immense form of society at large, or the still more imposing aspects of mankind. His ideas are all extremely minute and clear, or extremely general and vague. What lies between is an open void. When he has been drawn out of his own sphere, therefore, he always expects that some amazing object will be offered to his attention. And it is on these terms alone that he consents to tear himself for an instant from the petty complicated cares which form the charm and excitement of his life this appears to me sufficiently to explain why men in democracies whose concerns in general are so paltry call upon their poets for conceptions so vast and descriptions so unlimited the authors on their part do not fail to obey a propensity of which they themselves partake they perpetually inflate their imaginations, and expanding them beyond all bounds, they not unfrequently abandon the great in order to reach the gigantic. 
By these means they hope to attract the observations of the multitude, and to fix it easily upon themselves. Nor are their hopes disappointed, for as the multitude seeks for nothing in poetry but subjects of very vast dimensions, it has neither the time to measure with accuracy the proportions of all the subjects set before it, nor a taste sufficiently correct to perceive at once in what respect they are out of proportion. The author and the public at once vitiate one another. We have just seen that amongst democratic nations, the sources of poetry are grand, but not abundant. They are soon exhausted, and poets, not finding the elements of the ideal in what is real and true, abandon them entirely and create monsters. I do not fear that the poetry of democratic nations will prove to be too insipid, or that it will fly too near the ground. I rather apprehend that it will be forever losing itself in the clouds, and that it will range at last to purely imaginary regions. I fear that the productions of democratic poets may often be surcharged with an immense and incoherent imagery, with exaggerated descriptions and strange creations, and that the fantastic beings of their brains may sometimes make us regret the world of reality. End of chapter 18. End of section 9, chapters 17 and 18 of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, Volume 2, Book 1, translated by Henry Reeve.